I'm Amelia Bordeaux, and I am the host of the podcast Clarity with Diamond Standard. This is a podcast that talks about investment themes that impact the diamond commodity and the wider precious metals market. I'm so happy to be joined today by John Reed, who is a market strategist at the World Gold Council and a 36-year gold industry veteran. John, welcome today. Thank you, Amelia. Pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your extraordinary uh, work background in the gold market? Sure. No, thank you. Um, 36 years is a long time, and you can see so from the bags under my eyes. Uh, <laughs> but, but I started off uh, working as a mining engineer in the South African gold mining industry in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. I was then a gold equity analyst covering the South African gold stocks in South Africa. But then the gold price was on its way down in the late 1990s. So I had the opportunity to move to London, uh, also with UBS, uh, and become their commodity strategist which is great because you know how it works, a commodity desk, uh, as long as the price is moving, there's always trades to be done, whether a gold is going up or down. So that was that was much better. Right. Um, then after doing that for 10 years, I had an opportunity to join Paulson & Company uh, as their global gold strategist. And I was there for about seven years uh, working for John Paulson, which was very exciting. Um, and then when that came to an end, I've been at the World Gold Council now for six years. Um, which I really enjoy because, you know, the good thing about working at the World Gold Council is my gold market experience is valid all the time, every day. Um, and, and, you know, it doesn't really matter, you know, whether gold's up, down, flat, sideways. I, I, I can use what I've learned over the years um, to help the organization develop the gold market. Right. And UBS is where we first met. So very interesting. But you're based in London, but you travel extensively, it seems like. I do. I, I, I try and avoid to be out intercontinentally into back to back, but I probably do about 20 weeks of travel a year. Um, we have members, our mining companies that own us all, all over the world, um, but I spend most of the time in the centers that are important for gold demand. Um, so a lot of time in the US. I was in India last week. I'm going to Singapore and Hong Kong next week. Um, but basically, if there's a big gold market, whether it's a producer market or a consumer market, I try and get around there as, as often uh, as I can, which, uh, as I say, another contributor to the bags under the eyes. <laughs> but it must be so exciting. Um, I wanted to just just for clarity for everybody who's listening to the podcast or watching it. Could you just describe briefly what the, the mission of the World Gold Council is? Sure. We're, we're a market development organization. Uh, owned by a bunch of gold miners. So most of the listed gold mining companies in the world are our members and owners. And we're there really to, to develop the gold market, to make it more accessible uh, to gold buyers, whether they're investors or jewelry customers, uh, and to try and spread the message why gold should be in your portfolio. Um, and to that end, we produce lots of research, uh, lots of data, tools. We've got a big website, which is all free called gold.org. I'd encourage people that are interested in gold to go along and have a look there. So um, yeah, yeah. We, we'll link it a, in the show notes. We'll put the website up. And no, I appreciate that. Yeah. So we've got a staff of about 70 people. Um, we're headquartered in London, but we have big offices in New York, in uh, Mumbai, uh, in Shanghai, and then smaller offices uh, in Singapore, uh, now just opening in Dubai. Uh, and a tiny one in uh, in Beijing as well. So you can see we're spread around the world. Uh, we've got expertise in every aspect of the gold markets. We consider ourselves to be you know, one of the global experts on gold. 
And, and as I say to people, if you've got questions about gold, we probably can answer them. And if we don't, we probably know somebody that can. So yeah. um, look, I'd, I'd encourage you to engage with us if you're interested in gold and, and investing in precious metals. So great. Well, we have questions about gold today. So what I wanted to start with is um, here at Diamond Standard, we made a regulated diamond commodity and we are working to financialize it, meaning we have a spot market. Now we'll move on to futures, options, and eventually the ETF. And so I was thinking about often we compare ourselves to gold. And I was wondering, um, can we talk a little bit about the development just of gold ETFs from maybe the concept through through the listing and, and how that all kind of started? Yeah, I mean, that was before my time, but ironically, I was involved with it um, because at UBS, um, we were in conversations with the World Gold Council uh, about this idea when uh, the World Gold Council first thought of the idea of a gold ETF. And it, and it really resonated with me. Um, I remember some of the frustrations that I, that I felt when I was at UBS, when I used to get these questions coming through from brokers from the, the pain weather network of UBS. And they'd say, look, you know, we've got a client that wants to invest in gold. And you go, oh, great. And then they say, well, you know, they've got $100,000 to invest. And it'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's too small for an investment bank to open an account and do all the things with. And back in the day, you know, all we could really suggest to them is, well, go along to a coin dealer. Um, you know, there's a lot of reputable coin dealers in the States. Go and, go and buy your US Eagles or Krugerrands. And you might pay a 5% premium to the gold price. If, if, if things are really hot, you might pay a 7 or 8% premium to the gold price. Oh, and by the way, when you come to sell them back, you might get the spot price. So that's a pretty wide bit of spread. Mm -hmm. So the World Gold Council was, was looking at the idea of, of turning gold into an exchange-traded fund. So something that could trade on a securities market, which would allow anybody with a brokerage account to buy gold, um, at, at pretty much a zero premium um, and to hold it in the brokerage account and use it for all the reasons why you should own gold and why you should have it in terms of diversification returns, etc. So that was in the early 2000s. It took a long time to get through the SEC. Um, so long, in fact, that uh, other markets um, were first in line in terms of, of listing ETFs. The Austra Australia was the first. Um, the US product um, that we're behind came next, uh, and it's proliferated all around the world now. So one of the things we do at the World Gold Council is we track the, the, the inflows of dollars and outflows of dollars uh, into ETFs around the world. We run a database. It's got about 100 different products in there. So pretty much every major financial market in the world has either a, its own ETF or a secondary market listing of one of the major ETFs out there. And, you know, it, it has been a major factor in democratizing the uh, low-cost effective investment in gold over the last 20-odd years or so. And, and, and the reason I say democratizing is that if you were rich um, or if you were a fund or if you were an institutional investor that was prepared to go through the hassle of having a futures account or uh, opening up a direct relationship with an investment bank with a gold trading desk, you always were able to buy gold. But if you were an individual, you couldn't get access to it as an investment in a low-cost efficient manner. But with the ETFs, you could. So it revolutionized access, I think, to the gold market. Right. 
It's so important. It's interesting that you mentioned um, democratizing gold because I just think of it more as an investment product with more access. But the word democratizing is being used a lot, especially now in the alternative asset space with the growth of private markets and the sure. you know shrinking kind of of public markets. And how can you know we give you know the average investor, the retail investor, the individual investor greater access to these private markets? So that's a conversation happening a lot. Um, in the alt space and with Kaya. So that's interesting that gold actually democratizes itself by having the ETF. Thanks for making that point. Um, I was wondering if we could talk now about just the structure of the gold market, say daily turnover, how large it is. Um, where does the ETF oh. volume sit in that? And, and it's, a, it's a really interesting question, Amelia, because we, we often see news stories uh, about investment in gold through a very narrow lens of the ETFs. So ETFs uh, publish their NAVs on a daily basis. They publish how much gold they've got. So we track it via our database. I tweet about it. We produce a monthly report on it. And it's taken by some as being the, the most important uh, component of the gold market. Um, and don't get me wrong. It is important for all the reasons. It's I've the explained. one we read about the most, say, in the FT or the Wall Street Journal, you know. But it, it, it represents a fraction of the daily volumes of the gold market. So we estimate based on data from the London Bullion Market Association and the OTC market, but also from COMEX futures volumes, futures markets around the world, including Shanghai, Dubai, India, etc. The total volume traded in the gold market is about $150 billion a day. So that's a big market. That's comparable to you know, many major uh, foreign exchange crosses. It's, it, it's mo much more than the UK gilt market. It's much more than the UK, uh, sorry, the German Bund market. And uh, it's only really eclipsed by treasuries and, and things like the S&P 500 components. But $150 billion a day is a decent size. Now, about two thirds of that takes place in the over-the-counter market. So OTC gold trading primarily out of London, local London gold. Um, opaque, difficult to measure. The OBMA gives us some statistics, but probably incomplete. So we make adjustments to that number. Um, and then there's futures markets, which are really important, primarily COMEX, so New York futures market, <coughs> excuse me, and then other futures markets around the world too. ETFs make up one or 2% only of the turnover of gold um, globally. Now, it's a really important component of the gold market, but it's comparatively small. That's so, yeah, that's so interesting. So what is in the, the largest component of the, the gold market? It's the over-the-counter market where banks like where we both used to work, UBS right. um, or Goldman Sachs will be making prices to each other each day, um, trading electronically, um, but backed by the physical stocks of gold that exist um, in the clearing system in London. So, you know, there's, there's, there's tens of billions of dollars of physical gold sitting in London backing those uh, OTC trades. And then there's the futures markets around the world, which work in parallel with the OTC market and very much trading off each other. So if you're asked for, a, you're sitting at a, at a bullion desk and you're asked for a price in, say, 100,000 ounces of gold, you'll fulfill some of that volume in the OTC market, but you probably may even do more of it. Um, on the futures market and play the arbitrage between the two 
Sometimes you might even use the ETF market as well, if, if that happens to be a decent source of liquidity at the time when you're looking to, uh, to offset that risk. So all of these markets work very much in conjunction with each other, different prices, different spreads, uh, and those spreads change as well, which allows arbitrage, which is really important for the gold market, because ultimately to have a market to function, what you really want is you want lots, lots of liquidity and it doesn't matter whether it's short-term traders or high-frequency traders, as long as that liquidity is there so that when investors or fundamental buyers and sellers want to access that market, that they, that they have the ability to transact um, in an efficient way. Right. Yeah, when I sat um, on the FX trading desk at UBS, which at the time was in Stanford, Connecticut, um, I sat <laughs> at the very end of FX, so the next person next to me was the gold desk. Um, gold sales and, and trading. So it's always so interesting. I could hear what they were doing and they were very busy uh, all day, every day. So I feel like I learned by osmosis because I, <laughs> I sat next to the gold sales and gold trader. So it was kind of, that was kind of cool. It was very exciting times. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit about um, institutional investment of gold versus retail investment of gold and maybe the size or, or how large the yeah. component is of, of retail or why it's important? Yeah, and, and, I, and I think this, is, this goes back to my argument before about all we get to hear about is the ETF uh, and occasionally about positioning in the Kermix futures market. But, but people tend to miss out on what I would call the physical fundamentals of the gold market. So just to throw some numbers at you, Last year was a year when gold was basically flat over the year and spent most of the year down. It rallied pretty hard from about the beginning of November to end unchanged in the year. Um, and a lot of the narrative that you'd hear um, my friends in Bloomberg News writing about ETF inflows on a virtually a daily basis. But over the course of the year, we saw net outflows from exchange traded funds around the world of about 110 tons. But what you don't hear about are the stories about investment bar and coin demand. Now, I'm not talking about the big bars that, you know, that, that, that sit at Fort Knox or at the Bank of England. I'm talking about small killer bars about the size of a mobile phone. Uh, so bars like that and smaller. And then, of course, coins like U.S. Eagles, South African Krugerrands, etc. So. 110 tons of ETF selling last year. OK, sounds like a big story. Physical bar on coin demand, which is bought by retail investors, 1,200 tons. Wow. It's a much bigger market than uh, ETFs, almost all of the time. I suppose the point about ETFs is that some years they get really important, both on the buying side and on the selling side. So in 2020, for example, I think we had more than 800 tons of ETF uh, additions, ETF demand then. It was covid the rest of the world was, was kind of imploding. People were turning to gold for safe haven. People were turning to gold because of money printing and, uh, and, and, and fantastic expenditure by governments because of, of the COVID pandemic. So they bought gold. And they bought gold in physical form, but they bought gold via ETF. So that was a big positive year. We've also seen big negative years as well back in 2013 when, when gold fell a lot. But in general, ETF flows are much smaller than other components of the market. Now, one of the, one of the really interesting things about the gold market that we've seen um, in the last, uh, should we say, where are we now? So, say six months. So, gold bottomed near sixteen hundred dollars an ounce um, at the beginning of November, and then moved up to 
nearly $2,000 an ounce by the end of January. That roughly $400 move in gold um, saw COMEX futures um, players cover short positions and get long. Fine, you kind of expect that. But what you didn't see is you didn't see additions via ETFs. Bar and coin demand was strong, but ETF investment um, less so. And very interesting situation. Why do you think that? Because um, yeah. I think the equities were out, they did, or interest rates were high, so they were worried about yield or? I think so. And, and, I, and I think that's one of the differences between the physical gold market uh, and the ETF market. Physical gold market is bought by individuals. As I say it's retail money. You don't you don't pay the premiums for bars and coins um, if you're a sophisticated financial investor, whether it's an institution uh, or whether it's a retail investor with a brokerage account. Um, and if you're a retail investor with a brokerage account or an institution, you've got lots of different choices. The way you can hedge yourself against various factors, um, whereas uh, retail investors less sophisticated, genuinely concerned by inflation and other things that are happening. Um, whereas I think the higher interest rates were certainly playing a role in deterring uh, institutions and sophisticated financial investors from buying gold. Now, we've seen that change in the last few uh, months, particularly following the limited number of bank failures in the US and of course credit yeah. as well. Um, so the worries about another banking crisis uh, have flipped those ETF flows from being small sellers to being now um, net buyers in March, April, and uh, and May month to date. But the volumes are still much smaller than I would have expected. I mean, gold came within a whisker. Oh, interesting. All-time all highs. And yet the ETF buyers... Yeah are not as involved as you'd expect them to be. I wonder why. So that ETF inflow is being driven by North America, right? It's not being driven by Europe? It's the inflows that we have seen since they've turned positive have been dominated by North America. Um, and, and a lot will depend upon the background of what's happening. When, when, the, when the dollar is in a strong phase, then that tends to suppress the, 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 the dollar gold price. You know? yeah. Um, yeah. And when the dollar is weaker, it tends to encourage, um, you know, it tends to encourage the dollar gold price to go higher. So, typically, when we're seeing the dollar weak, then we're getting North American buyers. When we're seeing the dollar stronger, those buyers tend to be coming more from uh, from European ETFs. And, and it's one of the things that we analyze a lot in detail um, in our monthly report on the ETF flows, because what we look at is we look at the, you know, the regions of which are buying, the regions that are selling. We look at the different instruments as well. Some of the ETFs are higher cost, more liquid vehicles, tending to be accessed by, by people who really care about the ability to move volume. So if you want to buy 100,000 ounces or a you know, billion dollars of gold in a short space of time, then you would do it in one of the liquid products, which carries a higher fee, but you're probably going to need right. it, it for a little while. But if you're a retail investor that's looking to build a position and hold it for years, you'll buy perhaps one of the lower cost ETFs, more transaction costs, less liquidity, but you know, you're paying maybe 10 basis points per annum versus as much as 40 basis points per annum on one of the bigger right. So there's lots of insights and nuance that you can get by looking at this, this universe of roughly 100 ETFs around the world. Okay, and that's published monthly on your website, correct? Absolutely. All right, that's great. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, you pay more to have liquidity, right? So, you do. Yeah, you do. <laughs> Very interesting. Also in the the alt space, uh, which you know those 
investments tend to be held longer, less liquid. And, you know, we get feedback on that, especially on our commodity, less liquid right now. But it's, it's interesting. You, you may have to source liquidity somewhere else. And when you said the ETF may be more expensive, more liquid. So, um, yeah, very interesting. I wonder if the inflow into ETFs hasn't been so strong despite the minimum, the banking turmoil we've seen, especially in the U.S. I wonder because people, investors believe that it's been it's been ring fenced or it's going to be ring fenced. I think when the when they backstopped uh, the Treasury and the Fed, they backstopped or the FDA, they backstopped the uh, non-insurable deposits. Yeah, I feel I, in my own opinion only, I think that the market now thinks that they will definitely that that'll be the base case. They're just going to backstop all uninsured deposits, which we don't know if they will or they won't. But yeah. Well, it's interesting. We haven't seen a bank failure in what, two or three weeks now, and the market seems to be complacent about it. Um, it's like I don't know, the, the banking crisis that wasn't is now over. Um, yeah. Having said that, though, um, interest rates are a lot higher. And, and, and we know that and we know that banks have a lot of risk on their balance sheets. And the longer the interest rates stay high, the, the, I think the greater the chances are that we end up with more bank, bank issues. You're right. I think, I think savers, depositors have become more complacent. And they, they, they kind of think that, that their deposits are insured, perhaps when they haven't explicitly been so. Yeah, they haven't explicitly been so. But, but we know very well that, that the Fed and, and the broader U.S. government isn't keen to see the average depositor losing money through any banking stress. But, you know, there's no doubt about it. It's, uh, we've seen a very rapid increase in interest rates, and, and that's going to leave a mark uh, on the banking system. It's going to leave a, a mark on the, on the economies of the world as well. Yeah, 500 basis points in about uh, just a little over a year. So that was ten, ten minutes, I think it was, yeah, something like that. It, it felt like 10 minutes. It might have been a year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, seemingly, who is not complacent about risk, uh, at least in my opinion, seems central banks. So you've seen mm. a lot of buying of gold from central banks? Why, why do you think that is? Or can you talk a little bit about that flow? The, sure. The, the... And, and look, the central bank story in gold is really important. And, and, and I think it's something, I was having a conversation um, with somebody this week, actually. It's platinum week in London, which means that all the platinum oh. miners around the world are, um, are busy meeting in London with all the traders, the investors, and the whole industry's here. And, and, I, and I had an investor come to me and say, what is the chance that the platinum takes over gold in terms of central bank bank buying. Uh, and I said zero. And there's a very simple reason for that, is that, that in terms of what the IMF accepts as uh, reserves, it's currencies and investments in short-term US Treasury, Euro, bonds, whatever, and gold. So gold is the only non-currency or non-pure financial market instrument which counts for, for a country's international reserves. Uh, and that's really important. I mean, look, if you go back, back go back long enough, pre-1971, the world was still on a sort of gold standard. And right. um, we were in a situation there that, that eventually came to an end. Um, and the developed market central banks of the day um, ended up with a lot of gold on their balance sheets. Um, and over the next, well, up until the global financial crisis, we're reducing those. I think central banks sold gold for 21 years in a row up until the global financial crisis. And that was coming from primarily European plus Australia and Canada central banks. And they were selling gold because they had a lot of it on their balance sheets. I mean, in, in terms of their international reserves, 
it could make up 30, 50, 80% of their international reserves in some cases. And look, we advocate ownership of gold, but even we would, uh, we would say that that's too much. So they were selling. And, and it, you know, it wasn't a crazy idea. Uh, the timing was poor. I mean, the Bank of England, you know, sold a lot of gold and averaged 200, uh, $275 an ounce. The Swiss National Bank sold more gold um, and got it away at what looked like a better price of 440 US dollars an ounce. Now, gold's trading at about $2,000 an ounce at the moment. So with hindsight, that's a bad thing. So we come to the global financial crisis. Global financial crisis comes along, uh, gold goes up, everything else goes down, including sovereign ratings. Uh, central banks realize, mm, well, maybe having gold isn't a bad thing. And more to the point, uh, it becomes political in many countries as well. Basically, why did you sell your gold? Or you're not going to sell your gold, are you? Um, and and a, lot of, a lot of countries realize that the gold that they had on their balance sheet was probably the most trustworthy asset that they had there. Fine. Right. But the emerging markets didn't have much gold. I mean, they didn't have much gold at the end of Bretton Woods. They didn't have much in the way of foreign exchange reserves. They were tiny. But what we've seen from the Asian financial crisis at the end of the, uh, the 90s is an enormous increase in FX holdings by emerging market central banks. So they've got loads of FX, not much gold. So their currency is devalued, correct? Is that... well, exactly. The currency is devalued in, 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 the, in the emerging market crisis of the 90s. So what have they did to, to, to protect themselves is they brought up, built up massive FX reserves so that they, that would never happen to them again. Right. But then they saw the global financial crisis and thought, well, look, having gold would be a good thing to do. So we've seen emerging market central banks buy gold now every year since the global financial crisis. And, and, and that sort of purchase level has been between 250 and maybe 650 tons a year. Okay. Last year, they really stepped up, buying about 1,100 tons of gold um, and concentrated in the second half of the year. And that, those purchases have continued in the first quarter this year. So why is that? Well, there's a number of things. I think there's a recognition that we're in a more uncertain geopolitical environment. Um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think, has, has brought people's focus back to you know, maybe the end of the Cold War, you know, to coin a phrase. Um, but I think the other point that, that played a major role as well was the, um, was the sanctioning of the Central Bank of Russia by the Western community. So I, I think naively, many people think of central bank reserves as being a pile of cash in a vault somewhere that you can use in emergencies. Um, but as we both know, that's not the case. Yeah. Your international reserves are invested in US government debt, in European right. government debt, in Japanese government debt. And therefore, you're exposed to the, to the, the financial systems of these country, countries. And if they choose to lock you out of it and freeze you, which happened to Russia, and suddenly you lose access to all that money. Now, Russia had more than 20% of its roughly $500 billion of FX reserves in gold. That gold sits in Russia. It's mm -hmm. under Russia's control, and nobody can stop them from doing what they want with it. Admittedly, they can't sell it onto Western markets because of sanctions, but there's plenty of countries that, that are available to buy gold if they were to need it. And I think that that, that recognition that foreign exchange reserves aren't necessarily as safe as you think they are, has been a big revelation to, um, to what I would call the non-aligned uh, nations of the world. So not the West's enemies, but not automatic allies. 
and people and countries that always run the risk of offending you know the united states and its allies regarding certain policies you know i, I think it's fair to say that first under president trump and now under president biden the us dollar its clearing system uh, and settlement system has been weaponized to a degree and i think that that's that's playing out in in central banks diversifying a little bit towards gold i mean they perhaps would like to own other currencies but if you think of alternatives to the existing um, reserve currency of the world, they're neither liquid, uh, they're maybe bound by capital controls, you're not necessarily... Yeah, capital controls. It's, it's very tough because this is an interesting point. It's not so easy, so that's why I think gold is, makes more sense to them for the FX reserves because um, Russia, obviously, with Alrosa, the state-owned diamond uh, mining company, which is one of the largest or the largest mining company in the world, actually, in terms of tons of um, carrots mined annually. Anyway, uh, India is a major polishing center for diamonds. And so um, India and Russia were trying to work out a way that, um, you know, Russia could be paid in rupees for those diamonds. And they were negotiating in talks a couple of weeks ago, just fell apart because India didn't want to, ended up, I mean, I'm sorry, Russia ended up not wanting to accept those billions of rupees, you know, onto their balance sheet. So and I, yeah, I think there are issues, right? Absolutely, the issue. I mean, you you want to you want to be paid in things that you can spend or invest. Right. And until there is there are big liquid uh, investable markets where you trust the rule of, of law, um, then it, it's tricky to come up with an alternative to the to the reserve currency system that we have at the moment. I mean, the eurozone had the opportunity to do so, but chose not to because they didn't have an integrated an integrated capital market. And Germany refused to run a current account deficit. So if you don't run a current account deficit, you can't let people get hold of your euros. Um, right. So, um, you know, a lot spoken about the exorbitant privilege that the US dollar commands. Um, right. But I think it comes with responsibilities and it comes with, with, with real choices that you need to make. Um, and so far, no other country has really stood up and said, OK, we want to be a reserve currency. We're prepared to let our currency float. And to be at the mercy of international speculators, we're prepared to have a um, you know a deep liquid capital market uh, where people can trade and trust. So I think I think the dollar is you know it retains its 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 um, you know preeminent reserve currency status for the rest of my life. Now, of course, yeah. countries like China are saying that they'd like to be a reserve currency, but they make a lot of changes first. I think it's tough. I mean, we're recording this on May eighteenth, and just the most recent data that's come out of China in terms of their bond flows. Um, international investors are selling China bonds. So until international investors want to hold China bonds in size, it's going to be tough for the yuan, I would think, to become a reserve currency. Sure. Um, and then, of course, the, the IMF data was released maybe a month ago. And, you know, U.S. dollar is well over 50% of global reserves and China so, yuan is like 2.7% or something. So it, it has steadily moved up over a decade, but it hasn't really massively increased like the last couple of years or something. So. Exactly. And so look, I mean, gold's benefiting, I think, because people don't necessarily want as much exposure to developed market financial systems, but there aren't right. really replacements in place. So, you know, the legacy currency, gold, uh, is benefiting that. Yeah. You, the World Gold Council has an interesting report, um, just the strategic long-term, like allocation to gold. And I know you've looked at correlations and I just wanted to go over those to the extent that we can um, here, winding down the podcast. But um, it's very interesting. Uh, the, 
I think I've looked at, you know, when there's a lot of charts going around the Twitterverse, you know, <laughs> about the peak in the Fed funds rate and then what happens after the peak of the Fed sure. funds rate. And they always have a gold chart with the Fed funds yeah. rate. Um, so can, can you speak to that? Or maybe it's not really the peak in the Fed funds rate. Maybe it is like the U.S. economy entering recession and when the Fed cuts rates, gold rallies sure. or what do you or maybe it's driven off equities i don't know what do you i mean there's there's two, there's two things i'd say um there's a strategic case for gold which is why we think gold beyond belongs in pretty much every portfolio that we've looked at um and the reason i say that is it's a combination of returns so people think gold does well during periods of an, you know, anticipation of inflation uh, financial crises, COVID pandemics. And of course, yes, it's done well during those environments. But over the long term, if you look over the last 20 years, if you look back to 1971, still good returns that have been in line with major asset classes. Um, so you know, we're talking about sort of 8 eight to 9% average returns since 1971. So it's a source of returns always. The other characteristic, and probably one that's more important, is its diversification benefits. Gold is a good diversifier of other financial instruments, particularly things that have equity-like uh, risk-return characteristics. Mm -hmm. So adding gold to a portfolio reduces uh, the, um, the risk-adjusted, uh, sorry, uh, adding gold to a portfolio increases the risk-adjusted return of that portfolio um, through a combination of contribution of some returns, but lowering uh, the volatility of that portfolio as well. So it's a great asset to have in a portfolio. How much you should have depends really what country you're talking about. Uh, so what, what's your benchmark in terms of assets and over what period um, you, you examine it. Um, so we generally find that portfolios between, I don't know, maybe 4% and maybe a higher 10% allocation to gold is the sweet spot in terms of uh, of the risk-adjusted return. And generally speaking, the higher the proportion of, of equities or equity-like risk in your portfolio, the more gold you have. Fine. Right. Tactically, um, I mean, estab having established that you should have gold in your portfolio as a strategic allocation, you can then obviously move that allocation around depending on what you're thinking. Now, we've come very close to the all-time high in gold. So, um, I would be, ex be expressing some caution. It's not like it was in the third quarter last year when we were seeing gold near $1,600 an ounce and the speculative market was short gold. That's usually a great opportunity to say tactically, I want to get long when the speculators yeah. are short because they don't get short very often and they don't stay short for very long. So that's one Oh, thing. interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and we've got CFTC data going back to uh, I think the mid 1980s on this. So trading trading on that basis is important. Now they're kind of new, they're long at the moment, but not max long. Fine. What happens going forward? You know, crystal ball out. That's tricky to say. I mean, we're coming to the end of a Fed hiking cycle. <coughs> um, if the Fed stays more hawkish than the market's expecting, and I suspect will provoke some more banking stress, and that's probably yeah. not a bad environment for gold. Um, if the Fed is forced into cutting rates, perhaps because of a faster slowdown in the U.S. economy than it's currently been anticipated, well, then generally speaking, in a, in a Fed cutting environment, that tends to favor gold, too, particularly because it often leads to a weakening of the U.S. dollar as well. The That's US dollar right, yeah. pretty strong over the last while. So um, we don't make explicit forecasts. Uh, unfortunately, our ownership structure prevents us yeah, from doing no, right. 
But I would say at the moment that, you know, as well as the strategic case for earning gold, I think you can make make some compelling arguments why you, why you want to have a, a, a positive tactical allocation to it as well. Right. Well, there's just a lot of uncertainty geopolitically and economically. And I think, you know, when everybody's either watching CNBC or, um, you know, reading Bloomberg and Reuters, I just think a lot of really smart market people are completely disagreeing with each other about the outlook. So for me, in the macro world, and as a former like FX strategist and sales and trader, um, you know, there is an opportunity there and there'll probably be some sort of dislocation. That's just my type of opinion. So, so interesting. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch quickly. I should have earlier, I think on jewelry. Because right now, uh, the majority, vast majority of um, diamonds uh, that are above ground are used uh, for jewelry because they haven't been financialized yet. But but for gold, too. I mean, we talk about gold as an investment, but what 46% of above ground gold, is that correct? Or something like that is used in Something jewelry. like that. And, and about 38% of annual demand on average over the last 10 years has gone into jewelry. So, yes, you're right. We very much focus on investment, but it's... It's only one component uh, of gold demand, and the jewelry market's really important. It doesn't push the price to the high. I, I, it I doesn't. Tend to okay. No, but what what happens is that when you do get a period when investors are buying less and selling in some cases, um, then the price is low, and the jewelry market steps up and 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 is the price elastic demand component of the gold market, which prevents gold from having the sort of volatility that other commodities do. So when the price is high, the jewelry market steps back. We get more recycled old jewelry coming back to the market, so it's a source of supply. When the price is low, uh, because investors are selling, um, that recycled jewelry supply slows down, and we see the jewelry market step up. So it's a really important component. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And you said this to me once when we first spoke a little while ago that uh, gold and diamonds are joined in jewelry. So <laughs> very much so, and the health of the jewelry of the diamond market is really important to the health of, of, of the gold jewelry market. I'm just back from India last week um, and I'm popping into some jewelry shops to speak to some of the trade that I know there. And one of the things they've taught me over the years is, yes, the volumes that they sell are in gold. This is India in the, uh, an Indian wedding is very, you know, gold is very much in evidence, but the profitability of the overall store is very much dependent upon the smaller volumes of higher margin uh, diamond jewelry that they sell. So yes, you, you, you know, gold and, gold and diamonds go together in more than, more than one way, that's for sure. That's so great. Well, this talk has been so interesting. Thank you for all of your insight. I really appreciate it. And I know our listeners and viewers will too. Don't be a stranger to us. I, we hope to hear from you again. And everything will be linked in the show notes. Um, we're going to link the World Gold Council. Uh, website and maybe you'll give us uh, a bio so we can uh, go into your bio. Sure. No, I, I've been remiss in that. I apologize. We'll get a bio uh, and, and unfortunately a photograph as well. So you can use that. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, John. We really appreciate Thank you, it. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Materials presented are not intended to be a recommendation, solicitation, or offer to buy or sell any securities, financial instruments, investments, or to participate in any particular investment strategy. The content and opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a guarantee of future results, performance, or outcomes. Before acting on any information or content presented herein, you should consult with a qualified financial professional, tax advisor, or legal counsel to determine the suitability, risks, and potential rewards of any investment or financial strategy for your individual circumstances, financial situation, and risk tolerance.